0: You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 minutes with Michael Sullivan. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm not Brian Humphrey, but I am Ryan Stevenson, and I'm filling (laughs) in for Brian Humphrey. And you're
0: listening to a very special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 minutes with
1: yeah, 20 minutes with is an opportunity for us to spend some time with the amazing authors and creators that we have on the show in the hopes of drilling down into the techniques, strategies, tips, the processes, the things they use to arrive at the genius that is their writing. Outstanding. And
0: Ryan, may I say how delighted I am to be sharing the mm, mic with you again, sir. Yes. Thank you so much. No problem. Now, right. Uh, let me, let me set a scene for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. It's night. During a cold and bitter winter in 1989, a ramshackle trailer sits on the Vermont-Canadian border, a flickering lantern within the only source of warmth for miles. The wind blows mournfully in the pines, and the scuttling shadows of coyotes and wild dogs dance across the ground. Inside, a woman holds a newborn close to her, while her daughter leans against her for warmth. The yips and howls of the coyotes make the little girl clutch at the blanket she shares with her mother, and they both look up at the man by the window. He holds a rifle in his hand, staring intently out the window, marking the shadowy forms skulking in the swirling snow. He looks back at his family and says, "'I could use another peanut butter and jelly sandwich,' and smiles." (laughs) Now that man, Rye, <laughs> was our guest host before the novels and the accolades. It was in this bleak and foreboding setting that the spark of his award-winning Ryeria Revelation fantasy series was struck. During this time, a friend conceived an idea to help lift our guest host's spirits and began a chain story where one would write a few paragraphs and then send it to the other via snail mail, no less. What? And I I know, right? And ultimately creating a full story. But it was many years before those stories would be written. First, he would be tested, trying for a solid decade to become a published author, writing 12 novels, all refused. And, though he yielded to despair and sought a stable revenue stream plying his other talent, the noble path of graphic design and commercial illustration, the time was far from wasted.' As he was teaching himself how to write, our guest host would actually dissect how established authors wrote their books, drawing from the words the very secrets of their craft. Stephen King's characters, Ayn Rand's scenes, Steinbeck's emotive lyricism, and the simplicity of Hemingway were all his tutors and mentors. Now, years later, to help his daughter overcome her dyslexia and improve her reading skills, he wrote stories for her alone. Now, for years, this literary tutelage went on until our guest host had inadvertently created a healthy canon of work. And then... The wheel turned full cycle and destiny laid its hand upon his shoulder when his daughter gazed up at him from the kitchen table, eyes shining bright with innocence and trust and said, Dad, would you publish these stories for me? And thus our guest host was lured by the guile of love back into the blackest depths of shadowy corruption known as publication. But you know what? It all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Through a series of bold moves, a lot of help from his wife and friends, and a metric butt ton of sheer. Cussed determination, he navigated the self pub waters to the shining shores of publication. His Ryuria Revelation series has received recognitions as long as my arm, including being listed as one of the Library Journal's top 10 best fantasies, a National Indie Book Award finalist nod, a Reader Review's annual literary award finalist and Forward Magazine's Book of the Year finalist. He was listed as number six of the 25 self-published authors to watch, as well as io9's most successful self-published sci-fi and fantasy authors list. And Rye, this will tell you everything you need to know about him. Our guest host claims he never hit the Amazon Top 100. He hit 102! 102! Uh, but apparently that doesn't count but what does count dear friends is that he's made the time to hang out with us now so please join me in welcoming to the big chair at the round table michael sullivan michael thank you so much for for, for crawling out from the storm shelters of of hurricane sandy uh, and joining us this evening we really appreciate it sir
2: that, that was wonderful, Dave. I don't know who, was, I don't know, I don't know who you've been talking to. I was, oh, do, you, do you have a, like a secret investigator or something on my trail? Because I was wondering <laughs> what you were talking about. I'm like, God, this sounds really familiar. <laughs>
0: I have minions. <laughs> and, and we usually ask our, our guest hosts if they would just leave their apartment after we're done so our team can go in and clean up. <laughs> Yeah, get the um, bugs out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, man, that was all pulled from from content and interviews and stuff that you've done that's online. You say,
2: you've done a lot of work.
0: Well, and with you, sir, it's easy. That was an epic tale. <laughs> uh, and and let's let's get into our twenty minutes. I'm going to actually set our proper timer here because there's so much to discuss with you, Michael. Um, and I'm going to lead off uh, uh, with something that's kind of off the track I guess um, uh, among the works that you're currently developing is uh, burden
2: of the earth right burden to the earth uh, that was the earth, actually right. the last book I wrote before I gave up and left Vermont as you so right that put was it. the
0: book that put the nail in the coffin of your hopes during those dark days
2: correct now now Ryuria
0: is plot driven burden is a slower moving exploration and I was curious. After years of developing a story like the Ryeria Revelations, um, how is it that you can switch creative gears so dramatically and explore such a different literary form?
2: Well, as you had brought up earlier, I was dissecting different styles by different authors, and the technique I used was I would actually read multiple books by a single author, and then I would try to imitate them, almost like you know you would do impersonations in front of a mirror. So I actually wrote in different styles. I wrote in Stephen King's style. I wrote in uh, John Updike's style, which is actually the style I was using for the, the burden of the earth. The uh-huh. interesting thing is, is that later on I tried writing um, a story uh, in, in Stephen King's style. And, and my wife read it. She goes, my God, this is like by Stephen King. I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah, perfect.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but it, it wasn't until I gave up all that and actually tried writing just for fun that I found my own voice. And that's but- kind of the point.
0: But what's bringing you back to the burden now is is that is that a, a a voice that you want to to explore more deeply?
2: No, the point with that was that it was I felt an extremely good book. That's why when that didn't make it, I lost heart because I ah. felt that that was a masterpiece. so I it it's a beautifully written book. I think it's fantastic. I, it's just the kind of book I don't know that I would personally want to read it <laughs> because. Wow. It, it's when I was writing those books, I was writing Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winning books, and I really didn't like them all that much. They're not the kind of things I do for fun, so they were kind of dull and okay. kind of miserable and, and depressing. And that's what this book is. It's beautifully done. It's a gorgeous piece of literature, I think, but it's just, it's not something that I would sit and enjoy reading. So This, this is Finnegan's know. Wake.
0: This
1: is your Finnegan's <laughs> Wake.
2: <laughs> yeah, but nowhere near as long.
0: very good very good thank you i appreciate that that clarifies things
1: you know i just got to tack on at the end of that too as we're since we're talking about that i I am curious keeping in mind of course that it's been 10 years since you've touched burden and and you've been working on Rayuria for for some time now um if you can think back to those creative processes did you find one style easier or harder to write than the other I, i i just mean passively don't feel like you have to delve into that but i'm just curious
2: Uh, When I wrote Burden, I was actually trying to imitate the style that I was reading, which was present tense. And writing Mm -hmm. present tense, I find very difficult. Mm. I think most people do. Yeah. But it it makes for an interesting immediacy in the writing. But it was very hard for me to do that. It was much easier to do past. And and so I didn't have that. But the interesting thing about that book was I wrote it in, I think it was around 1992. And it was very much event-driven to what was happening at the time. So I would actually take notes on the news and then... As the days went by, I actually wrote it by day. So the events that take place in that book are literally you know, drawn right from the news. So if you read wow. it, it's like a time capsule.
1: Right. And that makes sense. Actually, that kind of alludes to something else I was curious about. I've, I was reading a lot of your work as well, doing that kind of research. And uh, I've learned about a lot of the tools that you talk about uh, a writer having available to them when they're, when they're in that kind of researching or preparation phase. Some of them obvious and simple, like word processors or the internet, which are available now, but obviously weren't in 1992, but uh, a couple of other things that you mentioned that I thought were very interesting were cameras or notebooks, and you mentioned specifically using those for, for sketching. Um, it gives me the impression when I hear you say that that you're kind of a visually-minded author. Um, how visual is that planning of a of a story or a novel for you in an outlining process? How much does the visual impact weigh in for you?
2: Uh, it probably doesn't do too much. It's not like I'm drawing pictures of things prior to it. I mean, I, I was talking with Joe... Uh, Haldeman, and he actually has a same type of notebook, but he does watercolors in his. He does beautiful watercolors. But no, I don't do anything like that. I, I just uh, I will take photographs of places so that I can remember them better when I go to uh, when I go to write them. Also, like right, just recently, I was writing something that has a scene that takes place in uh, uh, Greenfield Village in Michigan. Oh, I know and, that place. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I was able to use, like, all the different aspects of Google Earth and then, you know, the Internet and finding it and then photographs of, like, Firestone Farm that's there. And I could actually look inside the rooms, So which allowed me to actually see the actual place that the, the story was taking place. And I could say, I could say, this has a black chair, you know, a Queen Anne's chair. I mean, and I was able to actually say those things because so I'm looking at a picture of it. So that's… Mm-hmm. The difference between writing fantasy and writing something in the real world is so much easier because in the fantasy world, you're trying to figure out, how do I describe a bedroom you Mm -hmm. know, in the top of a tower? And you can make up whatever you want, which is nice. That way you don't have to worry about someone calling you on it. But at the same time, I've never been in a castle bedroom before, (laughs) so I don't know what that's like. You're building from whole cloth, yeah. Right, but but I mean, if I'm setting a scene in Starbucks, you know, I can just go there with my laptop, sit down, and look around, and go, "Oh, this is interesting," you know, and, and I'm done with the thing. In fact, I've got like ten pages I have to edit it out down to like one paragraph. <laughs> or
0: a little too much description there.
2: Yeah, but but that way you get the you get the cream.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm curious, seeing as how that you've explored uh, uh, two radically different POVs uh uh third person for for Rairia and first person for Burden what do you what did you find changed in your writing process between those two POVs and and did the story change at all uh in in I guess both in the telling and its its execution using those different POVs what was the impact
2: well now you got me curious cuz i'm pretty sure that Bird to the Earth is in third person. Is it okay? My bad. <laughs> but but I don't know because you, I haven't you, read. You've got some really good information. So <laughs> no, <laughs> I no, might no, be no, wrong I'm, now. I have to check. No, no, um, no don't go
0: there. But have you I've, have written in, in your explorations. You have attempted first person. I have,
2: I have written in first person, but not in a long time. Um, I don't know. I find first person to be rather limiting. I can do almost everything I can with first person and third now. Uh, so because usually people like first person because they can have a really strong voice. Uh, And this is very popular, I think, in literature right now. A lot of people are using – a lot of successful authors, I've noticed, are using very strong voices, meaning that they're they're very clever sounding. And and in some instances, I think that you can actually get by with a weaker story if you have a very strong voice. If this voice is entertaining – you know, it doesn't really matter if the story's all that interesting, because it's like having someone tell you a, a mildly interesting story, but they're really interesting. They're really, mm-hmm. like, like for instance, what Dave was just doing at the big top of the show here. <laughs> I mean, his, his voice was compelling. He just wanted to listen to him, even though it was just my simple little story. So... First person has a tendency to allow people to really kind of come up with quirky kind of phrases and ways of looking at things. But I can do that with third person. So I tend to stay away from it because it also allows me to give multiple point of views. and allows me to then describe scenes where um, you, you wouldn't normally be able to see that because the main character is not involved in it. Right, right. Although, God, you just gave me a, a, an inspiration to write a, a story
0: with multiple first person POVs. That could be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's been done. Mm. Oh, has it? Okay. That's All right. It's not, not nothing new under the sun, baby.
2: All right. <laughs> and <laughs> oh. and me, you're not going to get away with writing a first-person story that the main character dies
1: in either.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. That's been done. Too. That's been done. M- I much think you too- should
1: try one where that you show the ending first and then go back to the beginning and tell it up to that point. Wow. That's got to be fresh, right?
0: <laughs> uh, no, I think that's what been is Damn. <laughs> We'll be back with more of our conversation with Michael Sullivan after this brief promotional break. The Flames Any who step through may stride across the world and beyond. A precious, precious few, the ferryman, can guide you true through any flame and emerge from a crossing as young and strong as when first the flame kissed them. Fleets travel space for lifetimes, reach new worlds, challenge the black between galaxies. All thanks to the ferryman. But is there a price hidden in the ferryman's fire? A science fiction anthology featuring Matthew Sanborn Smith, J. Daniel Sawyer, Ed Robertson, Patrick McLean, Nathan Lowell, Brand Gamblin, Jason Andrew Bond, Jake Bible, and John Miro. Learn more at servingworlds.com. Walk the fire. The universe awaits. May the ferryman take you. Now let's get back to the conversation with Michael Sullivan. Michael, I, I wanted to ask you. Um, I, I wanted to bring your some of those uh, uh, critical uh, deconstruction skills to bear. In in one of your interviews, you you claimed that there's every reason for you to despise uh, Mark Lawrence's Prince of Thorns, uh, and yet you didn't. Uh, and given that ability that you have to to uh, analyze other writers for their their strengths and their craft, um, I thought it would be kind of a unique opportunity for our listeners to hear your take. On, on how and why that particular book overcame every objection you had and ultimately wormed its way into your heart.
2: Uh, well, let's see. It, it, it was one of those situations where I was expecting this to be an awful book because of what I had been told. Because I don't like dark and gritty. I don't like cynical type stories. I, I've found that the the trend that I left fantasy, I stopped reading fantasy way back in like the early 80s, and I only came back to it when I started publishing because people started asking me about other authors, and I had no clue, so I figured I had to read something. <laughs> um, but when I started reading, I was like, well, this stuff is really miserable and depressing, and I don't want to read this. Uh, so when I heard about Mark Lawrence's book, it was it, someone had done a review on it in which they, they rather trashed him as an author because they alluded to the fact that... It, he as an author must have the same opinions as his characters do, which I thought was ludicrous. So sure. that bothered me enough to where I actually went out and bought the book, even though from the description I didn't think I'd like it. But I bought it because of the per- because of the, the very bad review. And when I read it, what I found about that particular book was how well he writes. He writes with a very interesting economy of sentence in which he doesn't write sentences in a normal fashion. Uh, in other words, the kind that you would write if you're writing a college, you know, report or something. He writes with removing all the unnecessary words and often in, in fewer words than you can normally get out uh, in a normal sentence. He manages to convey more information in fewer words, which I found fascinating and very beautifully done. The other thing I found was interesting is that the character is so negative and so awful, but you accept him because of the fact that he's young and everyone else in the story is much worse than he is. And that was something I wasn't expecting. I'm like, how do you get, do you get someone mm. to be sympathetic to a character who's so evil? And then you find out that the people who he's against are even worse. You go, oh, okay. Well, now <laughs> I understand it. But now I think yeah, he might have a problem with the second book because the kid's growing up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings its own challenges, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, lesser of, of the, less, the least evil in the book becomes the protagonist. That's awesome.
1: <laughs> it's interesting we're talking about that too, uh, just that kind of that stage of the project and whatnot. I'm, I'm a little curious about something because when I'm, when I was going through your work, I noticed that you've got a lot of different things and a lot of different stages of development specifically. Now it seems like you've got a lot of things that are about to, to be sent forth onto the world, so to speak. Um, and I'm curious as you're working on these different projects with these different tones or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, do you ever have a, do you have a mechanism? I guess is a better way to put it to help you balance that workload of having so much <laughs> to do, um, and and how do you make sure that something you're doing in one piece doesn't cross-contaminate something you're doing in another? Or do you even have a technique to help you with that?
2: Uh, well, <laughs> you make it sound as if this is planned. <laughs> it's not that easy. Uh, actually, I was thinking Brandon Sanderson has a great uh, concept that what he does is he he's working on one book while thinking about the next one and doing edits to one previously for it. And I thought, well, that's a clever way of doing it. And then I realized now that I'm involved (laughs) in such things, I realized that's not a technique. That's just how it happens. Um, I'm writing – I only write one book at a time. I don't write multiple books because when I write a book, I have to essentially upload all the information to my RAM of my brain. Mm -hmm. And it holds pretty much one novel, not two. So that's all I have. But then what happens is like I'm in the middle of of a book right now called uh, Hollow World. And I'm working on this. I'm getting halfway through it. And then the books I wrote last year at this time are now coming back with changes mm-hmm. or, or suggestions from Orbit. And now I have to do rewrites for those. So I'm having to put the one book on pause while I go back and do you know some rewrites. And at the same time, I'm thinking about the new series that I'm going to be doing probably next year. So what I do is I carry one of those moleskin notebooks. And I'll just write down any time something hits me. I'll write down a note and put it away, and I don't think about it anymore. But that's how I, I keep track of what's going to happen. But I try to keep my mind focused on what I'm writing on right now, and then I get very annoyed because when I have to go back and do previous edits, because just, that just irritates me. But yeah, <laughs> I was supposed to be done with the book I'm writing a long time ago, but for the last month and a half, I've been stuck doing rewrites, which is, is not fun.
0: Fair enough. Excellent. Excellent. Michael, I'm curious uh, uh, if we could turn those those uh, analytic skills onto yourself. And what do you consider to be your greatest asset as an author? What 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 is your greatest skill or talent as an author? And what do you do to affirm and nurture that gift or or that that skill? Uh, my, my manly good looks, you mean? Uh, well, y- yes, exactly. Do you moisturize? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, what what is my, my, hmm, I would say probably plotting is where I have generally my most strengths. And uh, I think I also develop my characters fairly well through dialogue, which is odd given that the one thing that I learned from Stephen King, I thought, was how to develop a character through their thinking. Uh, he does a great job with uh, internal thoughts of characters, which I thought was great. But what, when I started writing uh, the rai which is actually how you pronounce that, rai Sorry year uh as a year uh. yeah uh so when I started writing that I wasn't trying to write great you know literature anymore I was trying to simply write something fun I was trying to write something I've mean, never read Harry Potter and and I thought it was just a blast to read uh, this is fun I want to write something that's just simple easy to read and that's how I started writing so when I did that I realized that I didn't want to have a fantasy story that had a wall of information starting off. And I think most of them begin with the typical description of races or the world yep. or the history or the religion, which to me is a huge turnoff. If I, if I pick up a fantasy book and that's the first thing I start reading about, I put the book down because I'm not interested anymore. I sure. want to start off with a character doing something. So I started that way and I noticed that I didn't want to pause and do an info dump. So what I did was I tried to bring out the the background world building and the background of the characters through interactions between people through dialogue and you know events that are going on. So I think that I I do that fairly well with with general dialogue that comes off interesting, kind of fun. I don't like books that are so serious. Fantasy has a real problem, I think, with this where they're over the top <laughs> serious to the point where it seems silly. Um, Because in any real-life situation, people are constantly making jokes, particularly when they're scared. When the situation gets really dire, that's when people make the funniest jokes. And when you're reading a story that doesn't have that, it just, to me, seems completely unrealistic. So I think the two things I do is I can build a pretty tight plot where everything in the story connects and makes sense i reuse characters i reuse scenes i reuse objects everything has a meaning to the very end of the story so i, I consider them to be a rather tight weave and i think the dialogue carries the story in a way that isn't as boring as just straight exposition agreed, agreed. Mm-hmm. excellent
1: i'm glad you mentioned that too i i've specifically noted that one of the things that it sounds like you're going to be working on is that prequel to the series um, that, that talks about a lot of the events that have occurred in the characters lives or that were alluded to in those books. Um, how do you find that you're going to approach that since you've, you've taken these, these events and I'm thinking of things like the, I hope I don't get the term right, but I think it was the crown theft Um, that you had alluded to or you'd mentioned in one of the previous books that you're now going to be fleshing out in a a prequel of sorts, and I I hesitate to use that word on your behalf, but I don't have a better one right now, so I'm going to do it. Um, How are you going to approach writing something in a greater level of detail when you, being so plot-driven, have have mentioned that already in a previous book? Do you you find there's any challenges to that?
2: Um, Not really. See, I've already done those two books. Uh, The first one is The Crown Tower, and the second one is The Rose and Thorn. Um, what I actually did, can I, can I talk about this for a second? Is that, is that okay? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah? absolutely. Uh, the process that this came about is I, I wrote a short story uh, called The Viscount and the Witch, which was put out in between the release of my previous books, um, the, the, the self-published one. They went away in orbit, released it. was the dead space of three months. So we wanted to put a short story. So I, I don't write short stories well. So I ended up writing what I consider to be the first chapter of a novel. So I wrote that, and when I did, I realized, oh, this is, this is kind of a cool novel. So I started writing the story, which was the, a major event that took place in the second year that the main characters of my novels got together. Royce and Hadrian you know, had them together for one year. And I got almost to the end of that story, and I realized, darn it, I'm going to have to go back and write <laughs> the first one because it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So – you know, halfway through the year, I went, all right, so I dropped that and I wrote the first book. So that's why I have these two books, which are the the first two novels. So, but those are all done. And and the challenge was, uh, I mean, I can visualize this, but I don't know how I can tell you about it. But there are certain objects that are immovable. They're, They're like, you're building a house and there's certain load bearing beams that you cannot move. So, because those are the things that are already talked about in the series, so those can't be changed. Um, and then I had to work around that and make a more compelling story than it was alluded to. That was a bit of a challenge, having preconceived, you know, non-movable objects. Mm-hmm. So, that, that was a bit of a challenge. But other than that, no, it, I mean, I knew the story. I had, the whole thing was in my head anyway. It was just a matter of telling what I already knew that the reader didn't know. Because when I created the series, I had created this iceberg effect where most of the information about my world is never told. It's never meant to be told. You get the very top edge, the best stuff, I think. And the rest of it is are, are, are underneath that. I never explain those things. So you know, this was the chance to go in and say, okay, this is this was the background information I had for the scene.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, gentlemen, uh, I'm I'm looking at the clock, uh, uh, and I, I couldn't help but notice it's been carried off by zombies and consumed. Uh, it is dead, and we are out of time. Um, not that we couldn't keep talking, uh, uh, for, for hours on end. Michael, thank you so much, uh, for making the time and, and sharing so, so much and so generously of your insights. This, this has been intriguing and, and much appreciated. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Ryan, oh, anything that stood out from there for you? Was there any flashpoint you went, Ooh, this is good. I like that. <laughs>
1: I, uh, I think the point about 10 to 15 seconds after you started, when I realized I was lazy, uh, that, that's kind of what stuck out for me. So yeah, I got to get to work. <laughs> You're a
0: gentleman, sir. Thank you. Hey, no <laughs> not Not my desired intention, but I'll tell you, awesome. <laughs> uh, For me, I was the, 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 the term, uh, uh, load-bearing story elements mm-hmm. really stuck out in my head. And also the, the discussion of POV. Uh, for some reason, POV just continues to be a, a topic that, that draws my attention and my interest. I'm going to actually have to start writing some shit and start actually exploring some of these intriguements uh, uh, that we're gathering so much. Mm-hmm. So... Well, friends, thank you so much for joining us for this 20 Minutes with Michael Sullivan. We always appreciate you closing the circuit and fulfilling our efforts by joining us and and taking in all of this literary goodness. Um, do stay tuned in a couple of days. We'll have Michael back, uh, and he's going to help us workshop a story, uh, which is going to be beyond awesome. Uh, of course, as always, uh, until then, if you're, if you're feeling literary impulses, may I recommend Drafting a review out on iTunes, a wonderful literary exercise, and it <laughs> helps boost our placement in the in the iTunes listings. Uh, we always appreciate that. And for those of you who have already done so, we remain grateful to you for your kind words and praise. That is so appreciated. Um, uh, if you have a comment, uh, leave a comment on the post uh, when it goes up at the website, www.roundtablepodcast.com, or drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. Uh, we're also out on Facebook. Wait for it. Roundtable Podcast. Yeah, we, we stayed up late coming up with Yo! that. I know, right? Nailed it. Yeah. So, uh, but we, we've got a couple of days to kill between now and then. Uh, Ryan, uh, any suggestions on what they ought to do between now and then?
1: Oh, you know what I always say, man. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated,
0: hydrated, baby. <laughs>
1: Got to stay hydrated.
0: Absolutely. Stay hydrated. Drink lots of fluids. Go right. And always remember that you find what you're looking for. Uh, So, dudes, look for awesome. Dudettes, look for the blue label. Look for the top shelf stuff, and you will find it. We will see you in a couple of days. Until then, stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyrighted 2012 by The Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented hepcats of Bro Town, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about The Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or just send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com.